Well, good morning. We're in the middle of something that uh, we have called the Bible Initiative, which is January 22nd, and maybe you haven't been here over the last couple of weeks or even in the early portion of, or the late portion of last year. We're in the middle of something that uh, we have called the Bible Initiative, which is just a fancy way to say that in 2017 we're really encouraging uh, our congregation to read through Scripture the big picture of the story, the narrative of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And so uh, this week our readings were about the fall. We were in Genesis 3, Genesis 4, a couple of Psalms and a chapter in Isaiah. Um, You may say to yourself, uh, I haven't done any of the readings up to this point. That's okay. Uh, You may say to yourself, I haven't been here and I don't even know what you're talking about. That's okay too. And so what we did is we have condensed the first couple of weeks of the Bible initiative into a catch-up plan. If you want to catch up and get to where we are and join us for the rest of the year, uh, you can do that by reading Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Psalm 139. Those are about creation. And then Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, those are about the fall. And then this week's readings would jump into what would be uh, kind of the era of the flood. Genesis 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. We're going to be in that chunk of scripture coming up uh, in this coming week. And so if you haven't started but you want to catch up, there's the means to do so. You'll be on the same page with us. Uh, Periodically throughout the Bible Initiative in the upcoming year, we'll push a a catch-up plan out there if if you're not on board with us, but you want to be. So, there it is. Uh, This morning, we're going to talk about the fall. And uh, sin would not be uh, a topic of conversation that our society and world is particularly fond of. It's not something that uh, people want to talk about a lot. But we need to address it head on, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. I want to remind us, though, two weeks ago we talked about creation. We saw some things about who God is. Uh, And it's important to remember those things about who God is, uh, because they matter this week for what we're looking at in the fall, but because they're always true of who he is. They're always going to matter. And so it's important to remember that we saw in creation that God is eternal. He's always existed. He existed before anything else ever existed. There was never a point where God did not exist. He's powerful. And sovereign, which means he, is, he has authority over all of his creation. He's a God of purpose. And that purpose is that his creation would be for his glory. Whether that's a mountain out in Colorado or a human being on the other side of the world. That his creation exists for his glory. That's the purpose. He's also a God of relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's always existed in the Trinity And so he's got perfect relationship there. And when he creates humanity, he wants relationship with humanity. That's important. He's a God of grace, and we saw that last week. He's unchanging, and he has a right to command. And having the right to command is going to lead us into where we are this week. It's also important to remember who who humanity was supposed to be. We were created with a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify the Lord. We're most alive and we're living most fully when we live within the will of the Lord, within the commands of the Lord. And and also importantly, we're image bearers of the Creator. 
when God goes to create humanity, he says, let us make mankind in our image, after our likeness. Last week was a little bit of a comparison of degrees between who God is and who we are. And whereas he is infinitely great, we are finite, limited representations of that, meant to bear his image and testify to his glory in the world that he has created. And this week, what we're going to see is a complete contrast between who God is and who humanity is. We're going to learn a final crucial piece of who we are, a final crucial piece of who God is, and a really important thing that that means for us. That's where we're headed this morning. So if you would join me in prayer, then we will jump into Genesis chapter 3. God, thanks for this morning. Thanks for the opportunity to come and to worship. God, to celebrate your son and what he did for us on the cross. The opportunity to celebrate that in communion. To remember his body broken for us. His blood poured out for us. God, to celebrate who Christ is in baptism, that he takes what is spiritually and eternally dead because of sin and by his righteousness brings life. And we're raised to walk in that. And for all who have placed their faith in that, that we will walk in that life eternally, Lord. God, thank you for the opportunity to come before you in your word and to worship you to come before you in song and to worship you. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us, God, that if we've placed our faith in you, our lives would be lives marked by worship, by a desire to live in response to who you are and to do so for your glory and for the proclamation of your Son in this world. God, as we look at your word this morning, would you speak to us? Would your spirit move in our hearts, Lord? Would you challenge us? Would you encourage us? Or would your word this morning be living and active? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got a Bible, you want to open it up to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to walk our way through uh, all of Genesis 3 this morning. And normally we're teaching on the front end, but due to uh, canceling service last week, we're going to be on the back side of our readings for the next two weeks which makes this a little bit more of a review of what you've already read if you've been following along with us. And it means I also want to give the following disclaimer. As you've read creation, Genesis 1 and 2, and as you've read about the fall, and next week as you read about the flood, (laughs) that's going to get challenging. Um, as As you read about the flood, there are some possibilities where we can fill in the gaps on things that Scripture doesn't tell us. The Bible was not written to be an all-inclusive, perfectly defining science textbook that gives us all the answers to all the questions that we could possibly have about the universe and how it functions and when it was created and exactly how everything came to be. The Bible was intended to point us to the glory of the Lord. It was intended to give us everything that we need to know about sin and humanity and Jesus and the Savior and the opportunity to live in relationship with a God who created everything that we see, including ourselves. Which means that there's nothing wrong with chasing out some of the questions that arise in the early portions of Genesis and seeking out the answers. But we've got to hold those with an open hand because there are a lot of possibilities. But we get ourselves in trouble when we take something that is certainly a possibility and we try to make it a certainty. 
and we stop extending grace to people who might hold another possibility as the thing that they ascribe to. And what I want to do, what I tried to do two weeks ago when we talked about creation, what I want to do this morning as we talk about the fall is I want to talk about certainties. I want to talk about the things that you read in Genesis 3, that you see in Genesis 4, two two weeks ago that we saw in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and we say, these are absolutes. We know this for certain about who God is and who we are and what that means for us. That's why the Bible is given to us, that we might know some certainties about who God is, some certainties about who we are, and some certainties about what it means to live in light of those things. If you want resources to chase out some of the possibilities and some of the questions that arise, our staff can point you to some of those. We'd love to engage in the conversation with you. We don't always have any more answers than you can find on your, on your own. Um, but we'd love to have the conversation with you. That being said, we seek out the absolutes, the certainties in Scripture, and we live in light of them. And so that's what we're going to do this morning as we read uh, about the fall. And so Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 5 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Over the last few months, uh, as we've waded our way through uh, our current political situation, circumstances, climate, fact-checking has become a big thing. We fact-check everything that a candidate says. I think it's important to fact-check what happens here in this story. Because a lack of facts is what Satan tries to present to Eve. If you just read the creation account a couple weeks ago, when you read Genesis 3, some things should sound a little off. They should jump off the page at you. And it's important to get the facts straight. So, Genesis 3. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Eve replies, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden. Fact. That's true. Genesis 2.16. That's where God says, I'm giving you all the fruit of the trees in the garden. The conversation goes on. Eve says, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Fact. Neither shall you touch it. Not fact. God didn't actually say that. Lest you die. Fact. That's kind of a half-truth. If you're making notes, you can look back at Genesis 2.17. They aren't supposed to eat the tree of the fruit, but God didn't say anything about touching. He did say that if you eat it, you will die. But then the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. Lie. That's a lie. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
Again, go back and look at Genesis 2, 17. There's a lie there. In fact, it's a really ironic lie. Because what did we learn last week? That humanity was made in God's image and in his likeness. And what does the serpent say? Oh, eat the fruit and you'll be like God. The irony there. That of all the things that exist in the garden, nothing is more like God in his likeness, in his image, than humanity already is. And Satan comes and says, but if you eat the fruit, then you'll be like him. There's a bit of a pattern here that we can pull out about temptation and about sin. And I think it's important to know that even though temptation can look differently at different times, I think being aware of the pattern is important. The pattern is this, that temptation lies. That's what temptation does. Temptation challenges our understanding of God's commands. Did he actually say that? That's why Jesus combats Satan, Satan's temptation with Scripture while he's in the wilderness for 40 days. That's the way you defeat a lie. You defeat it with truth. Temptation challenges our understanding of God's goodness, that he's irrational in his commands, in his do's and in his don'ts. And at times, in order to make him seem irrational, temptation tries to push us beyond what God has already said. That's what the Pharisees do. They take God's commands and they extend them beyond his actual command in order to create a system of religion that's binding, that's heavy, that's burdensome. Temptation challenges our understanding of God's love, that he's holding out on me. He's holding back from me. He's got something good that he doesn't want me to have. Temptation lies. Those are lies. God is the creator. He knows how we're to best function. He knows whether or not, to borrow from the illustration from a couple weeks ago, the bowl is dishwasher safe. God says, here's the bowl. Don't put it in the dishwasher. Satan, temptation says, put it in there. God just doesn't want you to clean it easily. It'll be better. And our issue is that the lie of temptation and sin often sounds better to us than the truth of what God has said. That the lies of temptation and the lies of sin often sound better to us than the truth of who we were created to be, than the truth of who God is. And so this account goes on in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That is the introduction of sin into the world. A breaking of God's commands. Here's a simple definition of what sin is. Sin is missing the mark of God's holy standard in action or attitude. 
In fact, the most common word for sin in the Old Testament and in the New Testament both have to do with this idea of missing the mark. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word hata is used over 600 times. And in the New Testament, the Greek word hamartano is used over 300 times. Both translate to missing the mark. But it isn't some sort of accidental miss. In fact, the thrust of both words is the image of an archer choosing to shoot at a different target. Choosing to miss his mark. Ryder Smith says this, the hundreds of examples of the word's moral use require that the wicked man misses the right mark because he chooses to aim at the wrong one. That he misses the right path because he deliberately follows the wrong one. That is, there is no question of an innocent mistake. Sin is a willful opposition to all that is good within God and his commands. It's a trampling on his character. That's obvious when we read it in Genesis chapter 3. You just saw in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 the goodness of God's creation and his commands. And then in Genesis chapter 3, you see the willful opposition to that. It's a little bit trickier when we think about ourselves. At times, we want to extend ourselves a little more grace than that. And there are times where we unknowingly sin or an attitude lurks beneath the surface in our heart that is sinful, that unless brought to light, we don't even know is hiding there. But the reality is that humanity is marked by a nature that is willfully disobedient to the command of the Lord. And so it's important to understand some things about sin, some general truths about sin. The first is this, humanity is sinful. The wording matters there. It's not that humanity does sin. We do do sin, but we do sin because we are sinful. There's a nature at work there that causes us to do things that are against the commands of the Lord. It's not humanity can sin, or humanity could sin, or humanity might sin. It's humanity is sinful. Is. The reality is that if any of us had been Adam and Eve in the garden, we would have done the same thing. It's easy to sit in this position and say, I can't believe they, I'm blaming Adam and Eve, I can't believe they did that. No, the reality is that had you been there, you'd have done the same thing. Sin is inherent within all of humanity. Adam and Eve are the representative heads of all of humanity. They aren't mythical or legendary figures. Scripture teaches that Adam and Eve were real people. We can read this story and think to ourselves, gee, Adam, gee, Eve, you really messed that up for all of us. But we bear Adam's nature. We too have a tendency within us that inclines us to shoot at a mark other than the one that God has set for us. We bear Adam and Eve's guilt. We bear Adam and Eve's nature. And we bear Adam and Eve's just consequence, which is death, which we'll get to in just a minute. Sin is a nature. It's not merely a behavior. Limiting the idea of sin to simply being behavior downplays its presence. Well, no one is perfect, would be the way that some people would say that. But the issue isn't just that you're not perfect. God is perfect. The issue is that we're entirely flawed. 
It's not, there are some things within me that are a little bit off. It's that I've got a nature that is entirely off. It lives within me. It's beneath the surface in my life at all times. Listen to the way Paul talks about sin in Romans chapter 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. What is the culprit? He says, the sin that dwells within me. Sin manifests itself at a behavioral level, but it lives in our nature. The next is this. Sin is always against God. It often plays out in our relationships with other people, but the reality is that our sin is always against the Lord. It's against a command of His. It's against a boundary of His. It's against His glory. We shouldn't ever downplay sin's impact on the people around us, but on a spiritual level, sin is always, first and foremost, against God. David says in Psalm 51, verse 4, Against you and you alone have I sinned. Now, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. He killed Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and then he says, Against you and you alone, Lord, have I sinned. Our sin is always against God. The next is this, and that's that sin is hollow. It does not, will not, cannot live up to the promise that it makes. Sin didn't make Adam and Eve more like God. In fact, it did the opposite. It took the image of God, the likeness of God within them, and marred it with the presence of sin. It's hollow. It can't ever deliver on the thing that it promises. A little bit of sin might seem like the way to some more happiness. A little bit of sin might seem like the way to more money. A little bit of sin might seem like the way to an easier life, whatever the case might be. But the reality is that that is hollow. Because what sin ends up doing is enslaving you to itself. In order to get that little bit more happiness, you sin. And where does that leave you? I need a little more. I need a little more. I need a little more. And that plays itself out perpetually. It's hollow. It can't ever deliver on the thing that it appears to promise. And the last is this. Sin desires your destruction. If you're looking in your Bible, flip over to or look over to Genesis 4, verse 7. In chapter 4, sin has progressed to the point where humanity is literally taking life from itself. And God tells Cain that sin is crouching at his door in verse 7, and its desire is for you. Sin's desire is for you in the sense that it wants to rule you. It wants to destroy you. Satan's desire is for you in the sense that he wants your destruction. God's desire is for you in the sense that he wants life for you. Sin desires your destruction. When we sin, we disregard the purpose for which God created us, which is to bear his image for his glory. In fact, what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is a willful decision to choose something opposite to the character of God. Look at what Eve is presented with. She knows what life is like in the garden. She knows the death is coming if she eats the fruit. 
she's presented with what? She's presented with the chance to be like God. She's presented with the chance to take from him the glory that's due to him and him alone. At the heart of sin is glory stealing. That we could take from God something that only ever belonged to him, that only ever he deserved, and we might grab it for ourselves. What Adam and Eve choose in the garden is momentary glory over everlasting life. We've been doing the same thing ever since. And it almost doesn't even make sense. And yet I stand here this morning and can tell you with full honesty and full sincerity that I do the same thing. That I see the commands of the Lord. I see the way it is that he desires for us to live. And I get presented at times with opportunities to choose momentary self-glorification over obedience to the life-giving commands of the Lord, and I don't know why, but my heart chooses the self-glorification. There's a sinful nature at play within me. Jeremiah 17.3 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? I can't. I can't understand my own. It doesn't make sense to me. I have seen the goodness of the Lord in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross on my behalf, and at times I still look sin dead in the face and say, I'll choose that. Desperately sick. It's a nature that lives within us. The story goes on, Genesis 3, verse 8 says this, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. And I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. That response to sin, comical as it almost sounds, is our typical response to sin. We move really quickly from look at me, self-glorification of sin, how can I boost myself by doing something that's contrary to the will of the Lord, to the character of the Lord, we move really quickly after that to, please don't look at me. I want to hide from my sin. We go from glory stealing to blame shifting in the blink of an eye. Adam knew exactly, Eve knew exactly what the truth was about the tree in the middle of the garden. When the Lord shows up and said, did you eat of it? Adam said, only because you put a woman here. And when he looks at Eve and says, did you eat of it? She says, only because you put the snake here. That's what we do. We shift the blame to someone else. We move that off of ourselves and put it on someone else. 
I want to read the rest of how the story plays out here, and there are some important truths to draw out as we finish. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he should reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away. Every, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We've seen the truth about who humanity is. We're sinful. We need to see the truth about who God is here. And that's that he is holy. He's separate from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor and glory. That's the definition of his holiness. We get that picture for the first time as God responds to Adam and Eve's sin. Our understanding of the seriousness of sin is is related directly to our understanding of God and His holiness. If we want to make sin seem less serious, we have to make God seem less holy. It's the only way to do that. When we do that, we've shrunk in our vision of who He is and how glorious He is. So because He's holy and we are sinful, sin has some consequences. The first of those is death. He warned Adam and Eve about that right from the beginning. Death in a physical sense. Adam and Eve leave the garden and they're going to face physical death. But death also in a spiritual sense. Because of the presence of sin in our lives, we can do no spiritual good for ourselves. We're spiritually dead. And that's worse than physical death. There's a third component to that, and that's eternal death. We can do nothing for ourselves and we face eternity apart from the Lord. That's the second consequence of sin. A lack of intimacy with God. It's immediately apparent in the fact that Adam and Eve hide themselves. They know what's happened. They hide from the Lord in shame. Sin, in a large sense, is still the same today. We estrange ourselves from God. He's holy. He can have nothing to do with our sin. He isn't going to change or update that stance simply because our culture and humanity continues to downplay sin's reality and sin's significance. The last consequence of sin that we see immediately in the garden is that there's relational strife with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve realize their vulnerability with each other and quickly cover themselves. Husbands, wives, this is one of the primary struggles of marriage, a desire to conceal from our spouse, a reluctance to be completely open and vulnerable and transparent with one another. Rather than being one, as we were intended to be, we want our own freedom and autonomy. We want want what's best for us, and sometimes that comes at the expense of our 
of our spouse. And the same is true in our relationships outside of marriage. Rather than being a united humanity who desires to partner with God in ruling and caring for his creation and for his glory, we look out for ourselves. We're interested in our own little slivers of glory rather than the greatness of God's glory in all of creation. But there is hope. We find that in Genesis 3. God tells Satan that an offspring of the woman is coming who will crush your head. See the grace of the Lord in Genesis chapter 3. There's reason to rejoice when you read Genesis chapter 3. And it's because God is gracious right from the beginning. He says, an offspring of the woman is going to come who will crush your head. You will bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. We're going to get this wounded victor, and that's what we get in Jesus Christ. He goes to the cross, and he, his body, his physical body is broken, and he hangs there, and sin is placed upon him, but he walks out of that tomb triumphant. The ground began to shake. The stone was rolled away. His perfect love could not be overcome. Now death, where is your sting? Our resurrected king has rendered you defeated. Genesis chapter 3, Jesus is screaming off the page at you that one is coming who's going to make all that is broken right again. There's hope right in the beginning. And from this point forward, the Bible is the story of God's commitment to redeeming sinful humanity through a holy Savior for His glory. I want to give you my favorite part of Genesis chapter 3 as I close this morning, and that's this. As God is getting ready to send Adam and Eve out of the garden, did you notice that He gave them a parting gift? He made clothes for them. As they stood in front of him with a realization of their nakedness because of their sin, he provides clothes for them as he sends them out of the garden. And he says, one day someone is going to come, an offspring is going to come who will crush Satan forever. And now, if by faith you place your faith in Jesus Christ and his work for you on the cross, then by grace you are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. His righteousness is given to you, and you will not have to stand naked and ashamed in front of the Lord on the day of judgment. You will stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And rather than walking away from the Lord into an eternity of death and separation, you will walk into his presence, into an eternity of perfect relationship with him. That's the beauty of the end of Genesis chapter 3. God is gracious. He provides them clothing by killing an animal. He is gracious in that he has provided your sin a covering in the killing of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? I'm going to pray. I went long. Somebody apologize to the children's workers, and then we'll go. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come and to worship. Thank you that off the pages of Genesis chapter 3, Jesus is calling. And we can come to the altar where the Father's arms are open wide because forgiveness has been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Sin is a reality. We're broken. We can do nothing to save ourselves, and yet you have done everything to save us without us deserving it at all. 
God, my prayer is that each of us would live in response to the absolute truths of Genesis chapter 3. For some in here, that means they need a realization of their sin and an interaction and an encounter with Jesus Christ, their Savior, for the very first time. For others of us, we need to live in light of the reality that there is a world full of people who do not know of the love of Jesus Christ. The reality of sin and its ever-present fixture in our world ought to drive us to share the goodness of the gospel with as many people as we possibly can until the day you take us home to be with you eternally. God, thank you for Jesus, for the one who came to crush Satan's head. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. We'll